I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. I am probably the loneliest person in the world because I have nothing I care for. And I can't make any friends to have any kind of a relationship or... So I've lost everything. I've lost everything I ever cared for. Everything I ever wanted. It's down the toilet. Since there is no love in my life, I must have something to replace it. So I replace it with hate. Constant hate. Constant reminded to hate. What's that do for you? Keeps my left foot going in front of my right foot. Is that all you've got left is hate? So I've got left. Everything that I ever cared for is gone. Everything I ever liked is gone. Everything I admit to me is gone. So hate. That's why you started with two. Then I've come full circle. It's time for me to die. So I could murder a podcast. We are back again with a fresh new case. Benjamin Carter, how are you doing today? Tom Norris, very well. Back in the flow, here on the main channel again. Uh, episode after episode, we've got 10 more after this. Good things. <laughs> but yeah, so really good, actually. Yeah, really good. Things, good. good things. Talking yeah. about death and murders. Well, and, yeah. Shootings, probably. Poison. Ben, uh, before we start, it looks like you're soaring like an eagle today. <laughs> you want yeah. to talk us through your outfit, please? Well above the mountains as well. I don't well know above them. There. Yeah, well yeah. above. We're back with our good friends, Gully Garms, um, and they are renewing the rivalry. The codes are kill Ben and kill Tom, right? When you fill in the code at the end of it, you can kill one of us. Ben was killed a lot more than me last series, so, therefore, the he, so therefore he won. Thank you. Um, so yeah, if you head over to gullygarms.com and use the code kill Ben or kill Tom, you get 30% off. Already low, great prices for great vintage wear. I'm wearing a tracky top speedway. I thought, you know, it, we're kind of going a bit of a gangstery way today. I've been watching the Sopranos. Sopranos? <laughs> I've been watching the Sopranos lately and uh, it very much fits the kind of look and feel of them. So I thought I'd wear this for today's case. Yeah. Producer Dan, how are you doing? Uh, very good, thanks. I'm feeling fit. Although I haven't started running yet, so... <coughs> oh, <laughs> feeling fit. Horrible cough. But no, good, very good, very good. Got the old channel in the background here. There Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Ooh. everybody. There we need go. it. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the first episode of the series, Charles Manson Case. It was a big old boy, but we wanted to go through it properly. Have you been listening to his music since then, Ben? Music? Music. Yeah, you sent me a couple of tunes via WhatsApp. You sent me one tune. I don't think I did. You did, yesterday. Not by him. No. Oh, I've not been listening to his music, but yeah, just all sorts of tracks. Mm, I sent yeah. you um, Tom Skinner's Bosch. Great track. Oh, no, no, no. You did send me two tracks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but not Charles Manson, yeah. which I was talking about. No, no, no. But Ben, today's case, do you want to peel back the... <laughs> the foreskin and reveal the head of today's case? <laughs> oh, fuck you know. Do you want to open the book on today's case, Ben? 
still got foreskin God. on the brain. Not on the brain, but on my mind. Do you want to peel back the cheeks in today's case? <laughs> <laughs> peel back. Part, part. Sorry, part. No, it's fine. Part. The second episode of Series 7. It is the case of Richard Kuklinski, otherwise known as... Tempted to get some like icicle noise in the background. Shivering background. That's the noise icicle makes. I've, I've heard them. Yeah. Is the case of the Iceman. <laughs> that wasn't very icicle. Do it again. It is the case of the Iceman. <laughs> Pretty good. Like a car slowing down on snow. Yeah. Turning on grit. Yeah, maybe need the one of those instruments down. You know what I'm about? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Can I try a noise? Go on. You gotta introduce me. The Iceman. It's pretty good. No, like that. I mean he did use effects to help him out, but yes, this case, we uh like usual, we have posted on Instagram about this before a long time ago when we were doing just random facts about killers. It's also one that I, think, I imagine a lot of people have seen if they delve into true crime on YouTube, they would have seen the infamous interviews and confessions of the Iceman. There's also a movie made about him. Mm. Um which is yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's watchable. It's watchable, yeah. yeah. Thought it was interesting that you mentioned the Sopranos early on because this guy, I remember doing a little look at him when we did our Instagram post about him. And I remember, oh, there's quite a bit to this case. But he also, he gives me, at one time, Tony Soprano vibes, but then also Jay Cartwright from the Inbetweeners vibes. I never thought I'd compare the two. Oh, because of, okay, yeah. Because of the bollocks. Because <laughs> of the lies. Um, or alleged lies. That's the thing about lies. Yeah, the film stars Michael Shannon, who's a great actor. It's got a good cast, but it's just, uh, I think it kind of feeds into his notions of what actually happened which we'll get into during the case. But yeah, it's a very interesting case, slightly different to the usual as it's it's a, what, in quotation marks, a hitman. Yeah, contract killer. Yeah, or a, a big bullshitter, Billy Bullshitter. He lives a double life with his family, which we'll get into. But yeah, lots to dissect with this case. And yes, yeah, some of it will contain some conjecture. That's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. A pinch of salt. We mentioned the gritting. The rose. Again, I just want I just want to say what people are... But yeah, no, very interesting case. It's nice to finally cover one as well, because we're both obviously big fans of The Sopranos and the Mafia... We're not big fans of The Mafia, but anything Mafia-related is, is interesting and intriguing to us. And I, I, I like that element of this week's case. You don't always get it at True Crime, and uh, we've got it this week. So very happy about that, and I just thought I'd mention it. So. I just want to let you run with it. No, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm dead. So yes, we're going to delve into the childhood of the Iceman when he was just a mere raindrop. Then we're going to see how he ended up in the place he ended up dead. No, we're going to see how he ended up where he did and try and see if we think he is a Billy bullshitter or if he is telling the truth. I've got quite an opinion, opinion on it and I'm interested to hear Ben's taking it and also Dan's taking it as well. I'm sure we'll play some snippets of some of the things he's claimed to do. Him himself, I think he's very a movie-like, a movie character playing the villain, mm, isn't he? Definitely, yeah. So now we're going to go into the childhood of Richard Kuklinski. Richard Leonard Kuklinski was born on the 11th of April 1935 to Stanley and Anna Kuklinski. His father was of Polish descent and his mother was Irish, and both of whom were immigrants. Richard was born in Jersey City, New Jersey, and he was the second child the pair had conceived, but Richard would later become one of four. So, big family. Is that big? We've done bigger. We have done bigger. Fairly large family. Richard grew up in a turbulent household. He was raised by parents who were abusive to each other and their children. His father, Stanley, who we're going to go on to talk about in a bit more detail, was particularly aggressive. In an interview later conducted with Richard whilst he was in prison, he was asked the question, what's the worst beating you ever took from your old man? Richard replied, I don't think there's much of a difference in any of them. They were all pretty bad. 
Richard feared his father to such a point that he would even wet the bed. When's the last time you pissed the bed, Ben? Goodness me. What counts as a full piss? I think any piss leaving your cock into your bed will count. So what if you wake up in 3am, for example, let the dogs out, yeah. go to the toilet, half asleep, just go for number one, half asleep, get back in bed, and then just a little drippage falls out. Like, unintentional, obviously. Not intentional. I don't know why you'd be doing it intentionally. No, that's why I'm just no, I think it was. <laughs> That doesn't count, doesn't it? Okay, so... Right? We all do that. You just haven't shaken it off. Ah, I shake it off, but I'm half asleep as well. Girl's giving you an out there. I don't know why you didn't take it. Pissy pants. No. Bed. Sorry, pissy bed. Didn't the dog sleep between your legs? None of this is going in. Isn't it? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Last time, full and proper piss... Because we talked about drippage in a cut that didn't make the sh show. <laughs> a little drippage falls out. Goodness me. I don't know if I was a frequent bedwetter. Maybe six. Is that, that's still old, isn't it? Maybe three. Oh, that number. Maybe two. I mean, you're just... I think it will be older than two. Backtracking, aren't I? Four. Yeah. You're just putting half. numbers. You're just making... Probably about four and a half last time I, I wet the bed. So yes, Richard it has experienced quite the already quite a traumatic childhood. Richard even admitted that if I could have, I probably would have killed him. Which is quite the thing to say about... Your own dad. His father was an alcoholic and a loudmouthed man. The latter trait deeply irritated Richard. It would go on to help decide who he would kill in his later life. A loudmouthed man. It's not only thing, it's just someone eating loudly. Like that. Mm. Producer Dan does. Um, he does do He's that. known for eating loudly. I think it just means people just talk, run their mouth a lot. Yeah. Making uh, bold ob claims. Obnoxious people. Hmm. Richard's mother was no saint, despite her devout Catholic lifestyle. Richard told the same interviewer how his mother was cancer. She would destroy everybody. Anna also had an aggressive side. She would abuse her children and even attempted to murder her husband with a kitchen knife on one occasion. Not a happy home life. Quite a family. Mm. Stanley worked at the railroads with Anna working at the meatpacking factory. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you used to take deliveries around the back of the meat? <laughs> it's part of the job. I don't get why you... <laughs> I know. You always sign it off. in front of my family. <laughs> The family did not have a lot of financial security, and so Richard would wear tattered clothing, which would result in him getting bullied. He was also subjected to racist remarks daily because of his Polish descent. Although they didn't love each other, Stanley and Anna could not divorce. Being a practicing Catholic, his mother would not bring such a shame onto her family. Very interesting and unhappy environment there with the family as well. The bullying got so bad at one point they called him Skinny Iced Kuklinski. Pardon? Skinny Iced Kuklinski, because he was little and an ice man. I think of the skinny ice bit. Skinny Iced Latte. Um, I mean that's yeah if you're going to school wearing the tattoos go just like what this All Saints they'll be like oh fair enough distressed clothing we talked about All Saints last week <laughs> I don't know I've got, I'm selling things on Depop some All Saints stuff are on there so that's probably why it's on the brain yeah really good deals once if you just put a little fucking nozzle 89 Depop <laughs> everything must go <laughs> So Richard was raised following his mother's faith. He was sent to a Catholic school where the fear of God was beaten into him. Metal rulers and Bibles were used as weaponry rather than school equipment. Richard was dyslexic and so he would struggle to read. The nuns did not understand this issue at the time and as a result, he would be beaten for his inability to read. They were having none of it. Oh. He made a monkery of the reading system. <laughs> reading system. <laughs> His mother believed religion was the only way her children would make upright citizens. It has been reported that his mother was assaulted by a priest when she was a child, resulting in her strict belief in faith. I don't know if that completely adds up. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one. you would have thought that would make you move away from the church. But... Fear the church. Mm. I mean, I guess you don't know what the priest would have said to her. 
It might have been true. along the lines of because she'd done something against God that happened. I'm completely um, speculating here. Um, but yeah, it's very bizarre. Richard was an altar boy at his mother's church, much to his disgust. He would be forced to sing the hymns about love when he was surrounded by so much hate. In later life, Richard would tell of one particular story where he let a man pray for 30 minutes before he killed him. To Richard, the fact that God did not save the man from being shot proved his theory that God did not exist. If he did, he would not allow such a murder to occur. In 1941, Richard's six-year-old brother Florian is killed at the hands of his father. Florian was beaten to death by his father, Stanley. Shockingly, the parents claim that a fall down the stairs had resulted in their son's death. People believe them. They take him to the hospital, but he would subsequently die as a result of his injuries. So that's absolutely shocking. Mm. A father beats his six-year-old son to death and lies about it to everyone. The family just continue with their life as if nothing had happened and it was a tragic accident. I mean, that's only the start of it. It gets so much worse. But So imagine being in your own house, your father's beating your brother to death, and then your mother has kind of corroborated the fact that it was an accident and things just move on as normal. Like we've discussed many a time, I guess the mother would be terrified in that situation as well. Mm-hmm. And then you're growing up in a situation thinking, that could easily happen to me if I step out of line. Yeah. So yeah, it'd be absolutely terrifying. So Florian and Richard were not only brothers, they were best friends. And at only five years old, Richard had lost his only true friend to the man who had created him. As a consequence of murdering his own son, Stanley leaves the household and abandons his family. And without his income, an already struggling family would have even more of an economic burden placed on them. You would have thought him leaving that household after what he did, perhaps the mother... Mm. May have gone to the police about that. I guess she would have been lied, she would have lied as well, yeah, so... Yeah, it's a tough one. Horrible situation. The financial situation only gets worse as Richard grows into a teenager. With little money for food, he is forced to steal for fear of starvation. When Richard turns 13, his fascination and participation in crime begins to grow. He starts to read crime magazines and becomes interested in the criminal underworld surrounding him. Nothing wrong with that. Making his interest become a reality, Richard begins stealing cars. Being a lonely teenager with no friends... You could I knew I knew you were going to look at me. I've got a few, and I'm not a teenager anymore. No. Being a lonely teenager with no friends, Richard turns his attention to animals. Don't look at me. <laughs> he commented how he used to tie two cats' tails together and throw them over a clothesline and watch them rip each other apart. I swear we've had that in another case. That is absolutely horrible. Albert Fish. He doesn't just torture cats, but he also abuse dogs too. He admitted that he had kicked dogs off the roofs of buildings. Richard commented that, when I was a young man, I found that if you hurt somebody, they would leave you alone. He also added, good guys do finish last. The belief would come into practice when Richard killed his first victim, aged 13. He dropped out of school by this point. A gang known as the Project Boys began picking on Richard. He was defenceless and would not fight back, so they continued to bully him until one day Richard snapped. The leader was called Charlie Lane, and his time bullying Richard was coming to a close. Charlie had beaten Richard so badly that he was in hospital for a week. Anna, Richard's mother, wished to press charges, but Richard took things into his own hands. One day, Richard waits for Charlie with a bar concealed within his sleeve. When he sees Charlie, Richard hits him repeatedly, bludgeoning him. Charlie falls to the ground, and as his body hits the concrete, he takes his last breath. At 13. That is quite a situation to be in at 13 years old, and yeah, very, very graphic end of Charlie's life. To go back to the cat point... Um, because I definitely recognise tying two, two cats' tails together from another case. I couldn't find the other case that it was from. But did you know there is uh, apparently a Croydon cat ripper? I didn't know. This Is, is this your... It's not. It's not. Oh. Just some throwaway stuff. Is it going to be... Is this going to be more interesting than the... Could be. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> Dan has produced Dan had a cheeky peek at this week's mm-hmm. interesting facts. It's an all right one. Does, does it beat Manson's one? I can't yes. remember that one. Okay, yeah. 
Was that about drinking? What was that about? That was about people without names. Oh, yeah. It's a good one. Come on, spit it out. That was it. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. There's a there's a there's a cat, oh, I cat, there's a cat there's more a information. Cat. Oh, I can give you more. Leaves you wanting more. So the Croydon cat Ripper is a name given to a hypothetical individual to have alleged to have killed, dismembered, and decapitated more than four hundred cats at the start of 2014 in Croydon. I vaguely recall of this. Yeah, that is horrific. Mm. There's kind of a four hundred cats. There's a heat map as well around Croydon as to where all of these different ones occurred, and it's. Jesus. It's, it's significant. That's, yeah, that's horrific. Christ, 400 cats. And they still haven't found the individual. Mm. Or individuals. Could or be a gang. gang yeah. Could be a gang, man. Could be a gang, man. Sorry for that slight cat tangent. Thank you. So realising that he now has blood on his hands, Richard panics. He knows he must dispose of this body. And bearing in mind again, he's 13 and having these thoughts. The body is taken and thrown into the pond under Pulaski Skyway. Where's that? In Pulaski. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was good from you. Yes, mate. And when talking about his first murder, Richard said, I didn't mean to do it, actually. Well, that's a fair enough defence. So as he moves into his later teenage years, having one body on the hit list already, Richard would begin to go to random bars, specifically looking for fights with men. Anyone who looked at him in the wrong way would end up with a black eye. And Richard, as, as a, the pictures of him when he's young, he does look about... 40. Yeah. He slightly looks a bit like... I just, just thought about now. <laughs> no, I'm actually referencing something people would know. He looks a little bit like Ken McElroy, the, the bully. The guy killed, the yeah, the town that killed his own bully. Yeah, it looks a little bit like him. Yeah, but yeah, he looks—he looks very old for his age, quite big and stocky, and it's kind of kid yeah. who would—he looks like the the bully, doesn't he? Um, yes, yeah, yeah very bizarre. We, we have covered that episode on Patreon as well. Shout out, early shout out to Patreon, <laughs> hundred episodes, patreon.com forward slash Good Murder Pod, pretty much hundred. So on this, Richard began to create a reputation for his aggressive behaviour. The boy that was once alone and bullied had now become a murderer. A gang named the Coming Up Roses Gang had heard about his work and wanted Richard on their side. I can imagine just having a band name like that. Coming Up Roses. Trying to be clever, it but it doesn't, doesn't quite work. Coming Up Roses. You mean it's Coming Up Smelling Roses, isn't it? Yeah. I remember now, do you remember the terrible pun that I used for the, the Instagram post? No, I'm still thinking of it. It was something about a barrel, wasn't it? It, it was, not a, not a nice man. <laughs> <laughs> terrible name. Yeah, so the Coming Up Roses, which I quite like the name, weirdly, but yeah. Yeah. They had five gang members. The year is now 1951. Richard begins to dabble with other methods of murder. One night he gets into a confrontation with a police officer named Doyle. Doyle had a reputation of being loudmouthed, like we mentioned earlier. He bloody Richard, hated that, he? Didn't bloody he? hates a loudmouth. Yeah. And this annoyed Richard no end as it reminded him of his father. Richard waits outside the bar for his prey. Doyle stumbled out of the bar and is so intoxicated he passes out drunk in his car. Richard sees this as a perfect opportunity to kill again. This would be an easy murder. As a result, he pours gasoline over the vehicle with Doyle inside. He sets it alight and watches his victim burn to death. He remarks in a later interview that he could smell him as he burnt, which is an absolutely horrific image. Yeah, it's quite an escalation. Again, how old is he at this point? He's still a t late teenager, isn't he? He was 16 when he did this. Fucking hell. So a very young age to be killing a policeman, let alone doing it yeah. through arson. Absolutely. Yeah. I just thought it would be important to say about his age. Yeah. For context on the case, definitely. Shortly after this kill, the Coming Up Roses gang are starting to build up a reputation for themselves. Organised crime is rife within major cities like New York. Consequently, they start networking with other gangs within the area. That sounds quite nice. Can you think it? of any other gang names that the Coming Up Roses gang would sort of um, intertwine with? Coming Up Roses. Um, It'll be all right on the night gang. The Shit Don't Stink gang. Um, That's a good one. Rosebud. It's not looking so bad, gang. <sighs> I'd be the leader of that. 
not the leader, but <laughs> mid-management. The bell tower, man. What's your gang called? It'll be all right on the night. I'm, I'm sort of between two factions. Which one's, your, which one's yours? It'll be all right on the night, and then it's not that bad. To mine's, it'll be perfect on the night, and it's great. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> it's great gang. It's great gang. Yeah. Great gang. Great gang, Really guys. good atmosphere. Yeah? Yeah. Mm. Well, we're beating yourselves in. <laughs> So because of this networking, the gang networking events, um, Gangs of New York, uh, because of this, they, say, <laughs> because of this, they are now receiving opportunities for paid killings. Richard Kuklinski has famously talked about the emotional detachment that he has with killing. He said that it was disappointing that he didn't get a feeling from it. We can now see the callous way he kills when another member of the Coming Up Roses gang cannot fulfill the task that they have been set. Yeah, he says in the interview, he says, what did you feel? He's like, I didn't feel anything. He was amazed that he's like, I didn't feel a thing. It didn't bother me. He was more bothered by the fact it didn't bother him than the actual act itself. And with all this talk of gangs and all this talk of, of um, quotes, I'm very surprised we haven't done our mob boss kind of accents. We've done well. I don't know what the mob was. It's like kind of New York. Is it? I'm walking here, but a bit more mafia-like. Continue. Oh, thank you. I do like this idea of gangs networking, though. It's quite... Imagine them with their own little signs, pop-up signs. They're like, hey, so we mainly do, uh, you know, we do hits by the river. And then the other one's going, I oh, just mainly strangle them. And there's like little things they do. Little, poison take, their take my card. Pardon? I put poison in their coffee. You're, you're just the janitor. Yeah. But like, like can you just leave eventually, us to it? Though, eventually, they keep berating the janitor. One day he snaps. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking really snaps. Um, <laughs> And instead of cleaning up the, you know, the cleaning p- up piss, the mess. Piss and shit. Yeah, instead of that, he starts cleaning up the... the, the, the piss and shit. No, no. <laughs> piss and shit. Uh, no, he starts cleaning up the uh, gang members, the higher, not higher, about the same level gang members. He sounds very nervous as janitor. Yeah, he didn't know that was his name. Doesn't know his broom from his ass. Um, but yeah, fair play to him. The gang asked John Wheeler to shoot a man at Lincoln Park. But in the end, it didn't really... Um, with the gun heavy in his hand, John stands still. His finger freezes on the trigger. He has taken too long. Richard snatches the gun from his associate's hand. He shoots without hesitation, and another target has been killed. By the age of 18, Richard's kill count and bank balance was rising. He is earning great money from his targeted killings, and he even manages to get himself a girlfriend called Linda. That's a weird thing to say like that. He is earning great money from his targeted killings, and at this point, he gets a girlfriend called Linda. <laughs> Me that even even manages to get him to yeah, it's like, like he's killing people fair enough but he got a girlfriend fuck so not much is concretely known about linda but we do know that she was nine years older than richard the pair are immediately serious and take things to the next step quickly the couple decides to move in together and so richard finally escapes the iron fist of his mother get off however richard's violent nature is seen both in and outside of work Linda becomes Richard's punching bag as he abuses her using the same methods his father would use on him. Furthermore, Richard claimed that he cut off her nipples when he became aware that she had been unfaithful to him. Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he is becoming more destructive and we begin to see a resurgence in the carelessness he had in killing at a much younger age. Richard begins to randomly kill the homeless. He used an array of methods to murder, slitting the throats, knives plunged into heads, strangulation, shooting and hanging were popular choices. Again, some of this has to be taken with a pinch of salt. A fistful of salt, I'd say, A fistful of salt, yeah, an iron fistful of salt. He um, he, he did like to spin the yarn about what he did and didn't get up to mm. in his earlier years. A lot of yarn. A lot of yarn from the Iceman. And he, um, yeah, he, he did sort of 
embellish things ever mm. so slightly. Hence the Jay Cartwright, Tony Soprano sort of vibes I'm getting. More just Jay Cartwright. Tony, yeah. T- t- Tony, just, Tony. Look, just looking like Tony, but speaking like Jay is what I kind of meant. Yeah. Because of the lack of coherence between each murder, the police do not think that is the work of one individual. As a result, the police draw the conclusion that the homeless are beginning to attack each other. So an investigation is never conducted. Richard is never suspected of these slayings. So that's the classic police thinking, it's a lower part of society, we're not going to look into it. Oh, the homeless are killing each other. If anything, it's getting rid of them. And but I guess as well, because you're using a range of different techniques, they're not seeing that trend either. Yeah, because the lack of coherence between each murder. Yeah, should, I should listen more. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's fine, it's tough. During this time, Richard is approached by two members from another group. They tell him how two members from the Coming Up Roses, John Wheel and Jack Robrowski, conned their gang during a game of Mafia Poker, and subsequently, they must pay. So, well, don't, don't be conning people in Mafia Poker, especially with yeah. gang members. This game would prove to be deadly, as when John Wheeler and Jack Robrowski allegedly took money from the gang, the only fair punishment was death. Richard was made aware of the altercation and told to take out not only his companions, but his two closest friends. Shockingly, Richard accepts this deal. Richard shoots his two friends. Once again, he's losing someone who's who's closest to him, but this time it is in his own hands. Richard's world comes to a halt when his girlfriend Linda falls pregnant. Richard feels upset at a time when he should be feeling happy. He does not love this woman, but he has to accept the accountability for his actions. Consequently, the two get married, and shortly afterwards, Richard Jr. is born. This was followed by another pregnancy, which resulted in a baby named David. Richard is now a father, but he does not feel an attachment towards his sons. Is there a big pattern here with people who go on to commit these heinous crimes tend to name the son after themselves we have seen it a lot haven't we Charles Manson had two people named after him Richard's got his first son's name after him I know it is a thing anyway to do that to carry on the family name so to speak but a lot of, mm. a lot of juniors knocking about there are yeah again he's following in his own father's footsteps in that he doesn't show or display any in- initial attachment towards his sons mm. things then go from bad to worse in Richard's eyes his boss is sent to prison and subsequently his workflow begins to dry up with no designated kills but still thirsty for murder Richard thinks about who he can kill next Next. His gang connections are not designating him any work. He's looking for someone to kill next. And not busy, not very active hitman. Mm. I don't know how busy they are. More a sit man at that time. <sighs> yeah, thinking this is it, man. As we were researching this episode, I did do a lot more thinking about, you know, typical lives of hitmen and hit women, just what they get up to. But I, I, this part is not something I thought about is what is a busy hitman? One a month, one a week? Oh, well, yeah. Day? I'm, I think you have to kind of, you're going to be tracking them for a while, seeing their movements. So it's mm. probably take, you know, if you want to do it, you want to do it and get away with it. I imagine, it, especially nowadays, Ben, when it's yeah. well, <laughs> more su- surveillance around. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Is, it, is this a leading to the interesting facts? No, or, I no? mean, no, no, but it's yeah. interesting that you said nowadays because that takes me perfectly to it. Um, oh, well, there you go. Play the jingle. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. I don't, I don't know. Interesting facts. Now, obviously, last week, yeah. maybe a Swing and a miss, but I want to see what this okay. week. There was a few swings last week, a few misses. But I'm interested to see what you've come up with this week. I think you're, <coughs> right. you're going to come back with vengeance. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I'm Thank you positive, so much. mental. I feel, oh. feel good about that. Thank you. So I knew I wouldn't be able to get a hundred percent real time accurate data oh, for, for this fuck. one. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I did immediately ponder when researching this case is how many active hitmen or contract killers are there at any given moment. Fascinating. But yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, you wouldn't, it'd be hard to get concrete information. And, and I suppose uh, one of the key elements to, to being a successful hitman is not being known. Yeah. 
So yeah, 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 straight yeah, away, yeah. all the really good hitmen out there probably aren't included in these facts. So what I did was, first of all, how many active hitmen are about in the world? And I couldn't get you an exact answer. Mm. But what I could get you is, first of all, a slight tangent is oh. that right now in, Amer- <laughs> right now in yeah. America, the FBI estimates that at any given time, there are between 25 and 50 active serial killers across America. However, that number can fluctuate. And whilst exact numbers cannot be given, it is estimated that there are between 40 and 60 contract killers who are active and not currently jailed in America. This can include members of drug-based gangs, members of the mafia, and astonishingly, corrupt members of the police force, which I thought, oh yeah, that's it. We should do a a copper one day. Yeah, there are a few, yeah. Yeah. um, But I always see, like, and I don't know why, because I don't follow any accounts like this on Twitter, but I always see, like, police malpractice videos being shared Mm. on Twitter, like shooting someone that was doing nothing or approaching. It's grim to see. So in the United States and England, then I thought, well, we talked about the Iceman making his money, making his fortune, wanting to be busy. I thought, okay, well, what what does the salary look like for a hitman? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So in America and England, contract killers usually are small-time criminals wanting to work their way up, as we've seen with Richard. Contracts may pay between a few hundred pounds up to £25,000. However, the FBI and London police combined investigate fewer than 100 contract killings per year on average. So there's not as many about. It's still quite a lot, though. It's quite a lot. Still a few, isn't it? So 100 here, well, up to 100 here, up to 100 in America. It's too, you know. Too well, it's than Beyonce. Wow. Yeah. But on that, in terms of the ones that are in it for the sort of more, on a more full time pro rata basis, a low level hitman can earn anything from $5,000 to $15,000 per hit. An average or intermediate hitman could earn anywhere between $30,000 and $50,000 per hit. And a high-level hitman uh, tend to cost far more, and they can cost up to $100,000 per Because it's the higher level and higher risk, isn't it? Yeah. And then just a final kind of throwaway, I then also searched, well, who's the most notorious hitman in history? Because I thought this guy would be up here with some Mm. of the stories he's told. And number one is Julio Santana, or Julio Santana, a notorious Brazilian hitman. And the reason why he's considered to be the most deadly hitman in history is because he has been proved to have killed... 492 people officially. Jesus. Um, and he's claimed to have killed more than 500 unofficially. I mean, it's only eight more. Well, the, re- the interesting reason for that is apparently he stopped counting at 492. Okay. <laughs> so why, how he reached that number and then decided, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he claims to have killed more than 500, but wow. officially can be uh, evidence to have killed 492 people. So there you go. Bit of, bit of Hitman sort of interesting stuff this week. There's a mixture in there, wasn't there? Some yeah, a mixture yeah. of interesting stuff, yeah. Yeah, that no, was good. That was ben, good. that was really good, actually. Oh, Dan. Let's talk about a pay rise, you know. Oh. Come see me in my office after the old podcast. My office. Yeah? Okay, sir. You the, you the boss. <laughs> Bring your appetite, he says. <laughs> you done? <Yeah. laughs> so as Ben mentioned, um, Richard's getting a bit itchy feet now. He he wants to kill again. And the fate of death lands upon his father. The only problem is he does not know where his father settled and after he abandoned his family. Richard admitted that he would have killed him with ease if he was able to track him down. Richard would not have the chance to kill his father when he later receives the message that he has already died. He does not attend the funeral, telling an interviewer, I didn't like him in life. Why would I go and see him in death? He does say very quotable things, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Although it seems as though Richard would kill anyone or anything, he does admit that he would never kill a child, yet he remarks, I most likely wouldn't kill a woman. I mean, he did kill a child whilst being a child. But. Yeah. 
He does have some form of code. Things begin to look up for Richard when his boss is finally released from prison. This would only be for a short while, however, as his boss is fatally shot. Richard is once again left alone and must find a stable source of income. In his 20s, that's the point I feel like we've discussed... uh, enough for him to be well into his 30s and mm. 40s by now so in his 20s richard is dabbling in the selling of porn so what he initially started doing is selling like bootleg copy of dvds do you remember before like before like um, the fire sticks you can get and and the internet really becoming a big thing you oh, used God. to get people did Bill you ever Gates used to have <laughs> did you ever used to have people that you knew that could get you like a, a a dvd version of a cinema movie that had only just come out in the a cinema. cinema movie yeah 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 like a, a pirate just, movie, a yeah. pirate copy, a pirate DVD is yeah, what I was trying to say. Cinema yeah. movie, yeah, yeah. So that was a thing, wasn't it? And you, you pay them like two pound fifty or a five or something. Get you know Avatar one. It's just called Avatar, wasn't one. it? Probably, probably not at that time either. That was <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get your point. Yeah, people yeah. used to pirate DVDs. You buy so them, Richard, yeah. So Richard started doing that initially, but he wasn't making as much money. So then what he thought is, you know what? I'll get a few blue movies, not mm. Avatar, um, <laughs> and um, start selling them at a higher price. And again, I he swear joined a new gang, the Blue Man Group. <laughs> Uh, banging their head against the wall for a while there, but they made, oh, they made some profit. Some that's what, that's what. Oh, you meant... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Dan got it. Papa Smurf. Papa Smurf. Papa Smurf. So yeah, so he basically decided... And I swear again, we, there's another case we, re- we did in Series 6 where someone was selling bootleg porn. So anyway, um, he starts deciding to sell pirated copies of, of, of DVD porn. During- <laughs> Not in the poop deck! That's good semen. Walk the plank, spank the plank. <laughs> no. No. Polly wants a cock. <laughs> Captain Hooker. Oh. <laughs> Around the same time, uh, Richard owes Tony Agura money, and this is where Richard meets crime lord Roy DeMeo. Roy was part of the Mafia family and was not a man to be messed with. DeMeo violently demands that the money that Richard owes is paid back to them immediately. It is not just DeMeo involved in this altercation. So DeMeo is a very high-ranking member of this gang, and as such, he has an army of hitmen that are slowly enclosing in on Richard. And despite only being able to see the barrel of a gun in every direction he looks, Richard stands still. It is as if he has accepted his fate. So as as a result of uh, the gang closing in on Richard, they begin to attack him. Richard is knocked to the ground and the six foot five, 300 pound man is being pummeled by fists and feet. He takes the beating and this actually earns the respect of Roy. Richard is knocked unconscious and because he has taken the beating, he has shown Roy his mental resilience. As a result, when Richard later wakes up, the two become associates and Richard starts working for Roy. Difficult interview process. Very difficult, mm. yeah. So Richard earns the trust of DeMeo after he passes another one of DeMeo's tests. One day Richard, Roy and Roy's cousin Joe are in a car. Roy places a gun equipped with a silencer into the hands of Richard. He is given clear instructions to kill that innocent man walking his dog. Joe is driving the car and he drives down the quiet street following the man and his dog. Richard shoots. So Roy DeMeo was the head of the execution ring for the Gambino Mafia family. They would work in a separate apartment at the back of the Gemini Lounge. Richard was taken there when he first started working for the family so that he could be introduced to them all. The group had a dinner and Richard began to quickly figure out that he did not particularly like these men. However, as much as he didn't like them, they did not like him. They had just cut up a body of a man in front of Richard and he could do nothing else but watch. Despite the hatred between Richard and the group, that night he became a contract killer for them. It'd probably be a better gang if everyone got on. In the, in the great gang, everyone's just like, oh man, I did what's up. It's really nice yeah. vibes. But in the it'll be all right on the night gang, it's a bit cagey. Not cagey, just everyone's... a bit, oh, a bit snidey. 
Everyone's a bit nervous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, it gets a bit. Yeah, but they yeah. get things done. They do get things done slowly. A long yeah. time. You did, yeah, on the night. Consistent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait to the last minute. A lot of time. That's like, yeah. on the night. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Makes, makes sense. Why yeah, yeah. Exactly. Don't, don't question the name then. It takes um, a lot longer though. Yeah, because of it. Yeah. But it'll be all right in the night. Yeah. So not only does Richard become a contract killer for the Gambino family, he also begins working for a trucking company named Swift Lines. What's on your jacket? Speedway. Speedway. Swift. Different Lines. one. Yeah. Different brand. A few, few, a few blocks down the road. <laughs> so at this trucking company, Richard would go on to meet his second wife to be, and that's Barbara Peditri. Barbara was a secretary at the company, and although there were efforts to keep the pair away from each other, I think people started to notice they were sort of gravitating towards one mm. another, really flirting away. And yeah, he was doing the trucks, and she was doing the secretary stuff and mm. one minute he was trucking the next minute he was and uh yeah people started to notice oh, and, and although heavy people load. were trying to heavy yeah but, <laughs> and although people were trying to kind of get in the way and stop things from happening barbara would later go on to accept the offer of a date with richard with the ice man but how do you break the ice yeah. man barbara was only 18 when the pair met and richard was even fired from the company as a preventative measure to limit the time they spent with each other like romeo and juliet isn't it? it is a bit yeah. yeah a few families involved as well five <laughs> um people knew something was off about him but they couldn't quite work it out he was 26 at the time of their meeting so linda his current wife who he's still married to nine years older and barbara let me do some quick maths eight years his junior mm. very quick maths for me for me as we mentioned, a lot of people trying to get in the way of things. He's now been sacked as a preventative measure to keep away from Barbara. However, the two cannot keep their hands off one another. But there is one problem. Richard is still legally married to Linda. Uh-oh. And although he is being considerate and romantic, as described by Barbara, she cannot date a married man. Barbara is infuriated by the fact that her boyfriend has a wife. She makes her frustrations known to Richard, and because of his devotion to her, he decides to divorce Linda. Not quite the divorce extent, but to Tony Soprano vibes. Because he is a gumar. Yeah. Which is a girlfriend for people who are in, in the gangs, which is a yeah. common thing. Yeah. It wouldn't work that way usually because it'd be, you'd stick to your wife, yeah. not leave her for... Loyalty. Yes, and yeah, not really the same. <laughs> <laughs> Although things start well, the relationship between Barbara and Richard quickly goes downhill. Barbara begins to feel claustrophobic. She's spending all her time with him and realises she isn't seeing her family and friends anymore. This is when she suggests to Richard that they should start seeing other people. We all know those friends who start you seeing know. people and then you never see them again. And when you do, it's just maybe at a wedding. You just literally have small talk. You're like, oh, we have to even know what job they have. And you used to be really close. It's quite sad. She didn't want to end up like that. Barbara knew it was dangerous to ask him this. Richard was angry in a way Barbara had not seen him before. Richard pulled out a knife he carried on him at all times and stabs her in the rib so quickly she did not feel the blade pierce her skin. Richard shouts threats and abuse at his girlfriend. He becomes extremely possessive and tells her that if she makes never remark like that or leaves him, he will kill anybody she has ever loved. Being too scared to leave, Barbara stays in Richard's clutches. So yeah, I mean, it's gone from them being hands all over each other, madly in love, quite the fairy tale to now she's been intimidated to stay with him and being stabbed by him so yeah it's all very Disaster. dark very Disaster. quickly when interviewed about this richard admitted there's nothing i haven't done and nothing she hasn't put up with i'm not proud about it it's the way it is so on their relationship from this moment onwards it would become kind of the norm for violence and aggression to be a part of their world and it has been reported that barbara had to watch as richard regularly threw fits and punches he even once threw a table out of a window during one fight even a really small table or a massive window yeah. I, I just we don't actually know which yeah tables have finally turned barbara commented that the man she loved and feared had two personalities she said 
There were two Richards, and I never knew who would be walking in the door. The good Richard or the bad Richard. Two Richards, eh? Good dick or the bad dick. Looking back at the relationship, Richard commented, I found something that I couldn't control. He went on to describe it as a love-hate relationship. He did deeply love her, but when he was angry, all he saw was red. It was like a bull and a matador. Nevertheless, the couple continues to develop their relationship and Barbara falls pregnant. Yet this pregnancy would result in miscarriage as a consequence of Richard's abuse. So one night, um, Richard caught Barbara smoking and as a result of this, he locked her outside in the, in the cold, which would unfortunately result in a miscarriage. And unfortunately, this wouldn't be the only pregnancy that would result in, in a miscarriage. Richard and Barbara are married in 1961. This was a quick marriage as Richard threatened to kill Barbara's family if she did not marry him. Jesus. I shouldn't be smiling. Do you think he went down on one knee and said that? <laughs> Fucking hell. That's insane. Soon afterwards, they conceived once again, but ultimately this pregnancy and a third one would result in a miscarriage. He beat those babies out of me, Barbara remarked, being reminded how the third miscarriage came at five months pregnant. Richard beat his wife so badly that she went on to have a premature labour and their son was born without a heartbeat. It's very, very dark. Yeah. Yeah, The pair would go on to have three children in the end. Merrick Kuklinski would be born in March 1964, Kristen would be born in 1965, and Dwayne would be born in 1969. Merrick, Dwayne and Kristen. Mm. The same year that his second child, Kristen, is born, Richard begins working for a film lab in Manhattan. He develops his skills and trains to become a technician. He cannot keep his criminal past concealed, though, as he begins to make bootleg porn movies. At the same time of bootlegging porn films, he also begins to develop Disney films, so he's expanding his market further. Richard has a close run-in with the law when he is arrested for cashing in a fraudulent check. During his arrest, Richard is photographed and fingerprinted. Although he is released shortly after, the charges are only dropped because he paid back the money he owed. This would be the only time he was arrested before his indefinite arrest later on. Although this copy making of porn is illegal, this does come from a good place. His firstborn Merrick was born with a kidney condition and the money that Richard was making from a side job was paying for her medical bills. She fell gravely ill shortly after she was born and during this time Richard stayed up with her every night until she was better. This is quite a difference to how his, his first sons were raised. Richard and his daughter Merrick did have a close relationship. He would often take her to the local park to feed the ducks and whilst they were bonding he would unleash all his woes onto her. He told her that if he did kill Barbara one day he would have to kill the rest of the family. But you Merrick, you'd be the hardest to kill. Jesus Christ. Like you can imagine like Fat Tony as a joke in The Simpsons, yeah. him saying that, but that is wow. wow. Feeding the ducks as well, so she, that's she's young at that age. You're feeding the ducks now, but you could be sleeping with the fishes later. <laughs> Although he was close to his daughter, she and her siblings saw the punches their own father threw at their mother. One altercation escalated into such a height that he broke his wife's nose and ribs. The children witnessed this whole ordeal, and they feared that the father would do to them in the way Richard feared what Stanley would do to him. So yeah, this very much mirroring his father's actions here. Despite the fact that he refused to physically hit his children, they would still face severe punishments when they did wrong in his eyes. One day, his loving daughter Merrick arrives home past her curfew, and as a punishment, Richard brutally murders her own daughter dog in front of her. Richard said, I've never felt sorry for anything I've done other than hurt my family. Richard knew he was causing them physical and emotional damage, just like his father had caused him. Yet he could not tame the aggressive nature inside him. That is quite a punishment for being late. So you might be questioning um, how no one suspects this man when he has such an imposing and violent nature. Well, we must remember that his own wife did not think he was capable of murder and did not know the extent of his criminal activities. To his extended family and his neighbours, Richard was a successful businessman. Richard was a prominent member of his community and he would send his children to the best schools in the area. He would host weekly summer barbecues and did not stand out as having traits that would make people cautious of him. Big Sopranos vibes. Literally a barbecue and he's a gangster. And good schools in the area. 
Richard was earning around four to five figures for each kill he was making for the mafia, and this would pay for anything his wife and children could desire. Big money coming into the family, probably a nice house. Richard is not the only Kuklinski to have a criminal history. In 1970, his brother Joseph rapes an innocent 12-year-old girl. This is before he then throws her body and her dog off the roof of a five-storey building. Richard detested his brother for such actions. He did not understand how he could do such a horrific thing to such a young life. Yet as much as he hated his brother, when asked about his actions, he replied with a comment that would suggest it was inevitable that they would both venture into a life of crime. Richard said, we come from the same father. So now we are into the mid-1970s and Richard is rolling the money. He is successfully completing four or more contract killings a month. So that answers your question, Ben. Yes. One a week. Pretty much. Barbara spoke of the family's wealth, saying, Once I shopped at Bloomingdale's, we had a pool. I had the best of everything. I had a cleaner and a housekeeper. I wanted for nothing. If I wanted it, Richard saw that I got it. So yeah, living the, the high life here. It is now the summer of 1979 and Richard takes the family on the road trip for, of a lifetime. He takes his wife and children to Florida. The group had a lovely time and even spent time fishing before they headed to Disney World. Things had become tense with the marriage between Barbara and Richard as he is spending so much time travelling from one place to another for what she thinks is illegal work. This holiday allows for the couple to rekindle and for Richard to spend proper time with his children. Away from his family, one of Richard's favourite methods of murder was cyanide as it was easy to administer and would lead to symptoms of a heart attack. This meant he could be certain that he wouldn't be caught and the forensic analysis would only pick up the drug if it was specifically looked for under investigation. I'm sure we'll get into it in more detail later on but he would say he'd just walk past someone in the pub and spray it on them like look as if he spilled some drink on them or he could drug a drink or he could even mention once about putting it into a hamburger yeah because when he would splash it onto their clothes by accident it would seep through their clothes mm. onto their skin and then it would seep into their bloodstream mm. so as richard was hosting weekly barbecues his victims were taking their last breaths Richard may have developed this method of murder from Robert Prongay. Robert and Richard met one day at a New Jersey motel where the pair unknowingly tried to kill the same man. It's a cute, quite a cute, meat, meat cute. Meat cute, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Trying to say. And yeah. the barbecues, it was a meat. Cute. Cut. Robert was an Army Special Forces veteran who was now prowling the streets in an ice cream truck, which he would use to stalk his victims without being suspected. Kuklinski said Robert was extremely crazy. He'd go into these neighbourhoods and sell ice cream to the kids and then maybe kill one of their fathers. Mm. Yeah. Robert learned how to freeze his victims from Richard and Richard learned how to use cyanide more effectively from Robert. It was a codependent relationship. Richard claimed that he later shot Robert after he talked about killing his own family. And although Robert was shot twice in the chest in one of his ice cream trucks in the August of 1984, people have theorised that this was not in fact the work of Richard Kuklinski. So Richard Kuklinski is a cold-hearted murderer. As Robert J. Carroll put it, Richard Kuklinski is not a serial killer. He's not a drug-crazed wild man running with a machine gun. He's not a person driven out for perverse sexual desires. He doesn't drink, he doesn't gamble. As he later comments, he's nothing more than a predator. I think he does fall under serial killer as well. <laughs> Another one of Richard Kuklinski's infamous murders involved rats. Richard alleged that he attacked a man with a taser gun, and when he was unable to move, he tied the man's hands and feet together, debilitating him. Then Richard drove the man to Bucks County and found a park which had a cave. This would be the perfect place to dispose of a body. Richard then placed the man into the cave and strangely set up a camera, which then proceeded to video the next steps. Richard stripped the victim of all his belongings and clothes, tied him up, and then threw cow blood all over the man. Within this cave hid rats. The rats then could smell their next meal. They devoured the man and even ate his bones. Richard waited, collected the camera, and then watched as the man was ripped apart by the rat's small teeth. When I read about this particular murder, 
it said that the rats started on the eyes because mm-hmm. they're the softest part of the body. What ball bag? <laughs> what about ball bag? <laughs> I mean, I'm not. So, but that's softer than an eye. <laughs> you touch them uh, the like, for the audio listeners. Ben's just touched the ball bag. Just doing a check. I'll check the other one. Good to check. Always, it, yeah. Reminded to people. Oh, mm-hmm. you found a love on your eye, Ben. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lips, lips, lips are, are soft. Yeah, lips and ball bags. Eyes are very that soft. That could be um, your drag name. Sorry, lips and ball bags. <laughs> Here she is. So, however, this is one of the moments we've been talking about. Could be false. Um, it's important to note that there is a reasonable doubt over whether Rich's claims should be believed at all. When the FBI raided Rich's house, searching for evidence of the crimes he later was convicted for, they could find no recollection of these videos. So did they ever exist, or did rats eat them as well, Ben? Mm-hmm. Maybe they existed in Rich's The tape was mind. the soft bit. Yeah. 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 The tape was the soft bit. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you might question, well, if Richard didn't kill for the mafia then how did he make his money? Obviously, he bootlegged and distributed porn. This was not done at the time, and so the industry was booming. He could have easily made millions this way. Furthermore, we also know that he did sell drugs. Moreover, people have deeply questioned whether the Charlie Lane murder that Richard committed when he was 13 had any credibility to it. In a later HBO special, Richard tells the interviewer his first kill was at 16. Furthermore, in an interview with Anthony Bruno, Richard tells a completely different version of events. Mm. So this is where the whole... The yarn is getting tangled. The spot the web's like... The spot on the web's like, oh, I don't know if I'm coming or going. How am I? The fl- no, I've got off to go there. I'm lost. <laughs> um, he never tells the same story the same yes. way twice. He's been laying the breadcrumbs, but then he's gone back and had a few of them. I mean, he's lost his way, Ben. Yeah. he didn't want to be hungry. He tells him that Charlie was originally called Johnny and Johnny was the one who would bully Richard as a teen. And so when Richard had enough, he waited for Johnny with a stick. This stick would be beaten against Johnny and this led to his death. So yeah, he's changed Johnny from Charlie to Johnny and then stick from pole. So yeah, it, it's... 16 yeah. to 13. 13 to 16. Yeah. Everything's your age range, isn't it? And that's on your... Fucking hell, Tinder. <laughs> Miles, I meant Miles. That's what I meant. Jesus. What did you mean? Doesn't matter, mate. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yet in 2006, Richard tells the story we have today. Charlie Lane was killed in broad daylight with no witnesses. Moreover, Rich chopped off the boy's fingers and damaged his teeth, and he was tossed into the river. Have you ever been tossed in the river, Ben? No, I've jumped into one, but never been tossed. No, I've jumped into one, but never... Well... (laughs) (laughs) Get that little net out. However, on this, no teeth or fingers were found in the river. In fact, Charlie was never found in the river or in birth or death records. There is no evidence of Charlie, Johnny or the Project Boys, which were the gangs the boys allegedly controlled, ever having existed. Mm. My great gang could be signed to birth or death records. Yeah? Yeah, very good. We some big tunes on that. Big tunes. Big tunes, yeah, okay. We didn't do it, brackets, but we didn't like him much. It's the first song we released. Yeah? Yeah, the chorus has got a big hook to it. Big hook. Big hook. Wow. Mm. Sounds catchy. Captain Hooker was, she featured on it. Yeah. So Big Rick, uh, as he claimed he was referred to, uh, alleged that he killed between 150 and 200 people. But in reality, it is most likely that he glamorised himself to make himself sound more notorious. Like, <clears throat> like Jake Paul in boxing. Does he do his numbers up? Oh, I don't know. Does he? <laughs> I don't know. Just over to you, Coffee Killer, or whatever the f- I can't remember his name. Mm-hmm. Coffeezilla. Like Logan Paul with crypto. There you go. Yeah, that's bad. So, I don't, I don't really know. Allegedly. More false claims. Have you tried Prime? Oh, uh, no. no. They sell it for £10 at a local yeah. Budgeons. There was the orange one, which I never go for orange, and I wouldn't pay 10 quid for it. No. No. Interesting. Have you? No, no, I haven't. Apparently, it's shit. Oh, I've heard it's very sweet. Medicine-y, I've heard. 
Look at us being YouTube. Bonzi, cut this bit out. And then we're <laughs> fucking trending on trending number one. As well as this, more false claims have been found. The burning of a car was reported by the media, but whether Richard was behind it or had placed himself into the story is not known. Again, going back to that. Yeah, where the, was his name? Doyle. The, yes. the policeman Doyle, which allegedly burnt the car and, and yeah. killed him, innit? And you would have thought a police officer being murdered in that way would have been big, big news and yeah. they would have been searching for the man behind it. As well as this, there's basically the club that Richard says it happened at was a different club. So this actually was uh, evidenced in the HBO documentary, showed it being at Club International. This is a completely different bar than the one named in the book, The Iceman, Confessions by a Contract Mafia Killer. And Philip Carlo, who, who wrote it after numerous meetings with uh, Richard, tells us that the bar was actually named Bonnie's. If Richard can remember the brutal torture he inflicted on this man, then surely he should be able to remember the bar that it was at. Or after 200 murders, do you forget details like that? Number one, Contract Killer stopped counting at 492. Mm. I suppose if you asked him what bar it happened at or what place it happened, you can imagine it would get a bit fuzzy so thirdly we do not actually know if richard did use cyanide to kill his victims although he reported killing gary smith and daniel deppner this way the media was heavily covering the story of the tidal murders at the time so richard once again read the story and placed himself into the narrative i have seen some footage of this undercover uh, undercover cop who he very much liked to put himself at the forefront of the documentaries i watched Mm -hmm. um he had quite the notable wig Uh, he basically said he was speaking to to Richard and they were openly talking about the hamburger incident and cyanide and things like that. And apparently Richard was planning to kill this man because there was tapes of him talking to one another. But Richard apparently was killing, was planning to kill this man anyway. So he was openly talking about these things. He's like, well, he's not going to yeah, say anything. Okay. But as an undercover cop, maybe don't put your face in front of the screen, especially if it's, yeah. if it's mob related. Do you think that's a silly way? I portrayed myself as a hitman. I told him I worked for the uh, wise guys downtown New York. And my my brother was a good fella downtown, and uh, I went by the name of Dominic Michael Provenzano. Not just the mention of hamburgers then, but it does have some similarities with the Joe Maffini case. Other than that, wow. he, Because he talked himself up in subsequent interviews saying he'd done this, he'd done that, but there were, it never lined up with the evidence. Yeah, I think that one was... The, the thing about that was the big question of the how much did he feed the people to the people, wasn't well, it? Well, that as well. How many burgers did he actually make? Yeah. And what did he make them of? Yeah, exactly. And now we're going to enter the timeline of the Iceman. Shh! <laughs> Iceman. So as we discussed earlier in the episode, Kuklinski falls into a life of petty criminal activity relatively early on in his life after leaving school in the eighth grade. During the 1960s, he manages to secure himself a job working in a film lab where he has direct access to the master copies of movies. He quickly realises that he can make an extra quick buck by making copies of Disney movies to sell illegally. The side hustle snowballs into a world of pornography and Kuklinski discovers that he can carve a lucrative career out of the distribution of pirated adult movies. Imagine the Iceman trying to (laughs) flog Frozen. It is through this means of illegal income that he soon becomes associated in the world of organised crime. And it is alleged that throughout his criminal career, he would go on to be involved with all five of the famous crime families of New York. The Bonanno... Split. (laughs) The Bonanno... Lucchesi, Genovese, Colombo and Gambino families. Apparently the Gambino ones are a bit childish. Um, 
After connecting through Kuklinski's pirate video distribution, a Gambino capo, Roy DeMeo, introduces Kuklinski to the notorious organisation who immediately feel that they can use Kuklinski's brutish strength and monstrous appearance to work to their advantage. Kuklinski is given a job as a debt collector and instructed to use whatever force necessary to obtain the outstanding money. The responsibility soon ascends to carrying out hits in exchange for large sums of cash after Kuklinski reportedly impresses DeMeo with his remorseless sense for killing when instructed to shoot a randomly selected target one day. So obviously we mentioned the stranger walking his dog, got out of the car, done. I had a family. Rest in peace. The man and his dog. The dog was on it? I don't think so. Went on to being Beethoven. Kuklinski does so without question, and a new level of respect is earned. So as we mentioned, Kuklinski would go on to generate a lot of money during this time, and in the mid-70s he was living in the middle-class neighbourhood with his wife Barbara and their three children. So on the outside he seems like a successful businessman, because they don't really know his ins and outs, and his wife has learnt better than to ask too many questions. Yeah, there's um, a very famous family photo, isn't there, with, with his sideburns. It's really famous. Really, really famous. Yeah. Honestly, I was, like, saw that, I was like, what the fuck? You know deja vu? Yeah. Um... <laughs> His wife in an interview was saying if he was to leave the dinner, half a drink dinner or two in the morning, she would just say, see you later and not ask any questions about where he's going because she knew it was kind of, she didn't know exactly what was going on in it, I believe, but she knew not to ask too many questions. So from the outside looking in, Kalinsky looked like he was living the American dream, shaking off the stigma of his immigrant parents and growing up in poverty to become a successful businessman, husband and father. Richard would go on to admit later on in interviews that he wanted to do the best for his family and provide for them. It also becomes quite the Jekyll and Hyde existence and he never allows his criminal life to cross the doorstep into his home. He portrays one way of life to onlookers yet hides the dark truth in the shadows. He is quoted as saying, I wanted one life, but I had to have another life quite a wordsmith yeah but he does say in this interview a lot he's like if I had the choice it's like ah, you have the choice a few times in this and you've just gone no I want the money Kuklinski becomes so good at shielding the truth from his family that he even goes as far as to carry out an ordered hit on one Christmas Eve after receiving a call which instructs him to go and collect a bad debt Kuklinski sets out to complete the task once the business is taken care of he returns home and continues putting his children's toys together in time for Christmas demonstrating just how cold he really was when he was asked about that particular one and they said like what were you thinking when you came back to your kids and he was like I just want to put the wagon together I just want to get that damn wagon finished so he didn't he was just showing how much he did, didn't bother him or, or care about it whatsoever cold as ice yeah it's just demonstrated how ice cold he already was so when he got home that evening as well it was, it was already on the news and he was said that was the first time he learned that it was a mob related hit because they said it was mob related and he's like that's the first time I realised I was related to the mob which I think it was a bit tongue in cheek Again, him just saying things of notoriety. Murder becomes a way of life for Richard, and he refuses to take anything less than five figures in cash for a hit. He claims to have killed so many people that he winds up forgetting the total figure, and he alleges to have murdered anywhere between 100 and 250 people over the course of his killing career. So frequent are the hits that he often fails to recall the victims' names. However, there are some that continue to stick out in his mind, and whilst giving an interview later in life, he recalls details of a particular man who he felt he probably did treat a little unfairly. Kuklinski mentions how the man was begging for his life and Kuklinski agreed to grant him an extra half an hour of time. You mentioned that a bit earlier, didn't we, about some of the religious themes that run through his life and this is one in particular he looks back on, I think, with a bit of guilt. The terms and conditions being that he could have half an hour to pray to God and if God could come down and change the circumstance of the situation, then he would be free to go. But God, of course, didn't show up and the circumstances did not change. On this murder, Kuklinski states, That wasn't too nice. That's one thing I shouldn't have done, that one. 
I shouldn't have done it that way. Although the majority of his killings he claims to not remember, there are a few in fact that he does, and these were the crimes that would eventually bring around the Iceman's downfall. By the mid-80s, Richard is well and truly known in the eyes of the law, especially after a police informant links Kuklinski to a burglary gang that he has been running on top of his murderous side hustle. Further investigations by the police uncover Kuklinski as being linked to a handful of unresolved murder cases, and as a result, it's about assembling a specialised task force aptly named Operation Iceman. Mm. Operation Iceman freezes your drinks in five seconds flat. It's like Dr. Frost. He, it's much fun. He makes drinks for everybody. <laughs> Dedicated in bringing Richard Kuklinski down. They wanted to melt the ice, man. They did indeed. Could they do it? They four could. Pardon? They four could. Sure, but four. Four the ice. Melt. Oh. Undercover agent Dominic Polifroni is given the task of befriending the deadly killer in 1985 with the hopes of obtaining crucially damning information from him. This is the guy I was talking about with the uh, slightly uh, sketchy looking wig. The wig man. System. Yeah, the wig man. The wig man, yeah. Over the course of 18 months, Polifroni manages to convince Kuklinski that he too runs in the same bad guy circles. I think he was with the All Right on the Night Boys. <laughs> yeah. He was, yeah. Yeah, he was a bit wishy-washy. And, yeah, they were fine with that. Very accepting. Uh, so he's in the bad, same sort of bad guy circles as him, and he even manages to build up a level of friendship with the gigantic murderer. Gigantic. <laughs> he was he was a big boy. All right, mate. Oh, fuck yeah. His objective, of course, is to only ever gather enough incriminating evidence to put the Iceman away behind bars for good. So far, the police have only managed to gather circumstantial evidence relating to Kuklinski's involvement in various murders. Ben, circumstantial evidence, just if someone doesn't know what it is. Sure. Can you please fill it in? Circumstantial. So um, I imagine if, Not imagine if, let's say, a big murder <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah, a big one by a gigantic killer. So let's just say that a gigantic murder happened at your local subway. And it was a local subway that you happen to go to quite often. Right. And police were sort of mentioning, in light of this murder, oh, yeah, that guy, Tom, he does go to that subway a lot. And also, he does some strange things in the dark. That's very loose, though, isn't it? Circumstantial. Yeah, but I think it has to be... What does Google say? It says, evidence that does not directly prove a fact in dispute, but allows the fact finder to draw a reasonable idea about the existence or non-existence of a fact based on the evidence. It was words loosely loose. circumstantial. Yeah. yeah. I mean, let me tighten it up a bit. Tom goes to Subway regularly. I don't. He was there the night of the murders. I wasn't. Naked. What's he doing naked at Subway? Hmm. Yes, yeah, so circumstantial, yeah. It, it's kind of very, very loose. It won't really stand yeah. up in the core law. Nice one. Thank you so much. So in this case, obviously, the evidence is only circumstantial. Polyphrony needs to get something concrete in order to have him convicted. And during the year and a half that the two men were in contact, Polyphrony manages to gain Kuklinski's trust and get him to open up about various crimes and murders he has committed. Polyphrony admits to having been terrified that an ex was constantly on his own back, but he felt he had to keep up the charade in order to get the job done. There's like tapes of them talking to one another. And I just feel like Polyphony is very over the top. Yeah. He's like, oh, surely you need a fucking weapon to fucking do it. He's like, just swearing <laughs> too far too much. And it's the questions are so open in the sense of like, it's the kind of thing you wouldn't talk to the other person about. Like, but he just, was a big talker, weren't he, Iceman? Yeah, he's a, he had to brag about it and stuff. But I just think if he got away with all these murders, uh, he wouldn't be as, as free and open talking about them as he mm. did. It just seems so like staged the way he was talking yeah. but is it like one of those versions where someone plays really really dumb in order to extract more information 
Yeah, there's just this like. There's no way that could have happened. You fucking should you use some iron to fucking get rid of these bodies? You can leave the fucking mess. He's like, well, then Clancy's like, I'm not gonna. It won't be. It'll it'll be neat. It won't be unnecessarily messy, kind of thing. But he's quite controlled with how he's talking, Clancy. But yeah, the guy seems a little far too full of beans. (laughs) Polyphony. Polyphony, more like if he's undercover. Polybaloney. So Polyphrony expertly manages to secure recordings of their conversations, as Tom mentioned, and it is as a result of these talks that Kuklinski divulges his love of using cyanide to poison his victims, as he claims it to work real quick and easy, and highlights that it's hard to detect too. He shares a story with Polyphrony about a time he laced a target's hamburger with cyanide. As mentioned before, cyanide usually gets to work with speed, but in this particular case, the guy was apparently... Built like a goddamn ox. I said that very white. You are very white. Thank you. Pale. And he continues to eat his hamburger without any suspicion at all. Until the poison finally hits him and bam, he's down. In order to play the part, Polyphrony fakes laughter and (laughs) (laughs) and amusement (laughs) at the Iceman's anecdotes and cleverly probes him to divulge more. So, uh, you have any cheese in that hamburger? (laughs) Kuklinski admits to being heavily involved with the Mafia and draws attention to the fact that they often ask him to make a statement with his killings. In one case, instructing him to place a dead canary in the mouth of one of his victims in order to send a warning to those associated with the victim. They hear gas. He suffered with gas. <laughs> Another one apparently cut someone's tongue off and shoved it up their ass. So there's always that. Arse licker. Could be. <laughs> but that'd be a reason to kill someone for being an arse licker. It depends who's after licking. By December of 1986, Polyphrony has gathered enough evidence to guarantee a conviction. But first, a sting operation is set up. Um, so they got the police back together and they... Um... Fuck it, hell. Stinging the police, Dan. <laughs> Tricking Kuklinski into thinking that he has a hit he wants carried out, Polyphrony records Kuklinski discussing the ways to murder the fictitious target. On the 17th of December 1986, after agreeing to the terms of the deal, Kuklinski drives home unaware that the police are setting up roadblocks around his home and laying in a wait to arrest him. So yeah, there's footage of this and pictures of this and there's so many policemen. How many? So many, I think. Well, he says 37. That's so many. That is so many, isn't it? Yeah. Probably could be doing other stuff. Need 37 people? Yeah, he's a big guy, but not that big. Gigantic. Gigantic murderer. Upon arriving home, Kuklinski and his wife Barbara decide to head out for the day. But upon getting into the car, the police pounce on him, dragging him out of the vehicle and tackling him to the ground in an attempt to handcuff the beast of a man. Barbara looks shell-shocked, screaming to know what this is all about. She too is placing handcuffs as a policeman aggressively places his foot on her back and calmly informs her that her husband is a murderer. It's an interesting fact, Barbara was also arrested at the same time apparently on the grounds of disorderly conduct because she was making such a fuss during her husband's arrest. You can imagine her kicking off if she doesn't know what's going on. She was also charged from possession of a firearm as there was a handgun in the car, of which she was considered a passenger of at the time. But surely she has some suspicions. Like we said, she doesn't ask questions, Ben. No, but she makes a fuss. Yeah, you get a needle on the back. <laughs> I'm going to make a fuss. Get the fuck off me, girl. How are you? Yeah, she makes a fuss because 37 policemen turning up. You expected mm. a nice day shopping with your husband. Yeah. He's probably promised you some, you know, this, fixing the bowler he's been putting off all this time. And then you, next thing you know. You're in the slammer. You're in the slammer. Yeah. It's just serving porridge. Yeah. British for being in prison. Kuklinski is taken into police custody and placed under arrest for his involvement in the following five murders. The same day as his arrest, Kuklinski is brought in front of a judge to determine the basis of his arrest and to suggest denying him bail. He is aged 51. 
Upon his arrest and arrival to his same-day court appearance, Kuklinski tells waiting reporters that this is unwarranted, unnecessary. These guys watch too many movies. Unnecessary. These guys watch too many movies. But after his bail is set at $2 million, then his tune soon changes, and he eventually admits to his involvement in all five of the murders he has been accused of. So, yeah. considering he said... 150 to 200. He's the first five that they've nailed him on. Apparently, the police also concluded that he would be the last person that saw these people alive, and that was the kind of thing. They had like a map of where their bodies were laid, and they are like, this all makes sense. He was the last person to see them. So we start off with victim number one, George Malaband. In early February of 1980, the body of George Malaband was discovered stuffed into a 55-gallon drum barrel. The two men had arranged to meet in New Jersey on January 31st, 1980, apparently under the circumstances of an organised deal relating to pirated pornographic videotapes. Malaband had been carrying $27,000 in cash in exchange for the videos. That's... There must be good videos. That's a lot of money. Yeah, there's a lot of money. Could have been a lot of videos. Kuklinski shot the unsuspecting Malaband and stuffed his body into a barrel before walking away with the money. Isn't there a photo of him with the barrel? There's a story about him him sitting on the barrel and having lunch, I believe, or like he would lean against the barrels and talk to people very openly kind of thing. He was quite smug about his barrel tactics. Mm. Bit snow-towny. A little bit snow-towny. A little bit snow-towny. Snow-town like the present. The second victim was Louis Masguet. On July 1st of 1981, Louis Masguet was last seen on his way to a videotape deal that had been set up with Kuklinski. Louis had hidden an estimated sum of $95,000 worth of cash worth of cash within the door of the vehicle he was driving. What vehicle do you think it is, Benno? Yeah, no, probably a van. Cash bag doesn't work. What's the big door that opens up like that? Lamborghini? Mm. Probably couldn't, it probably needs to be slim and slimline mm. for that feature, that mechanism. His partially decomposed body was discovered a couple of years later in September of 1983. He had been shot in the head execution style and then been wrapped up in plastic sheets and bound by rope. What roused suspicion of the coroner was that upon investigation of the corpse, ice particles were discovered. Dun, dun, dun. The body had not yet fully thawed out, and this immediately alerted police to the fact that this body must have been frozen in an attempt to cover up the real date of death. Kuklinski admitted to keeping Mazgay's body in the industrial freezer of one of the warehouses he had leased for storage purposes. So yeah, he'd, he'd kept this body frozen in a freezer for two years. In the current climate, phew, cost of living, yeah. energy bills... Yeah. I mean, he had lots of money to get there. And all the money in the car, not to mention the car door money. This particular murder earned him the nickname he was so well associated with, the Iceman. There you go. People get the nicknames from, usually that's their kind of calling card or... Yeah. I thought it was because he was so calm. No. Cool and calm. Cool and calm. Cool, calm and collected Iceman. But no, just use a freezer once. <laughs> you like popsicles? <laughs> The third victim was Paul Hoffman. On April 29th, 1982, pharmacist Paul Hoffman arrives at one of the Iceman's warehouses, nervously excited about the business deal that they have arranged. Yeah, I've, this is one of the ones that I, I heard on one of the documentaries I, I watched. Hoffman believes he is on his way there to illegally buy a prescription drug from um, the Iceman for the sum of $22,000. He knows that he could sell this particular drug on for a much higher price, making himself a tidy little profit. So the drug was to do with um, ulcers, mouth ulcers, Ben. Ouch. Yeah. Leaves a bad taste in the mouth. However, Kuklinski had other ideas. Upon the initial meeting, Hoffman shows that Iceman the bag of cash is brought with him and then asks, okay, where's the merchandise? Where's the dice? Where's the dice? I brought your money. Where's the merchandise? Kuklinski then grabs Hoffman, holds a gun under his chin and coldly replies, those are not merchandise. 
when one shot is fired in Hoffman's jaw, but unfortunately this alone doesn't kill him. He writhes and screams with agony, all while sputtering blood from his wounded mouth. So Kuklinski, with brute force, whacks Hoffman over the head, knocking him out and eventually killing him. He then stuffs the body into a 50-gallon drum and pockets the cash, just as he has done with many of his previous victims. He then decides to leave his barrel, this is a bit weird, he leaves his barrel hidden in plain sight in order to ever know he's aroused suspicion at all. He frequents this adjoining cafe, Harry's, every day for the coming weeks. So it's literally just popped outside the back of this, this sandwich shop. He listens and watches to see whether there's any mention of the drum sitting outside on the street and is relieved when no one ever mentions the thing. One day, the Iceman is curious to discover that the barrel is no longer there, yet no mention of a corpse being discovered is ever reported. To this day, Paul Hoffman's body has never been found. That's scary, isn't it? Yes, I think that's where the barrel kind of connotations to come with. I mean, he has put two bodies in a barrel. Rather than the Iceman, the Barrel Man. Yeah. Not as cool a name. The Barrel Bludgeoner. Nah, as he had you over a barrel, but that doesn't... The next victim was Gary Smith. On December 26th, 1982, a decaying body is found underneath a bed in a New Jersey hotel room. The corpse belongs to that of Gary Smith, supposedly a member of one of Kuklinski's organised burglary rings. It is alleged that Kuklinski was worried about Smith turning police informant. Regarding Gary Smith, Kuklinski had some concerns and the rest of the Mafia members had concerns that Smith may be uh, sharing information to the police. After another member of the gang had been previously arrested and snitched on who else was in the gang. As warrants were issued for the gang members' arrest, Kuklinski advised all involved in the burglary ring to lay low and not draw attention to themselves. He clearly had concerns about Smith, however, as he decided to silence him before it was too late and enlisted his friend and associate, Daniel Deppner, to help. Using his preferred method of cyanide, the Iceman laced Smith's food with the poison and waited for him to die. Growing impatient that the cyanide wasn't taking effect quickly enough, Kuklinski then demanded Deppner to strangle Smith which he did so with a lamp cord, eventually extinguishing the life out of him. Not knowing how to remove the body from the hotel without drawing suspicion, Kuklinski decided the best option was to simply hide the body of Gary Smith under the bed in the hotel room. Which hmm, is a bold suggestion. The creepiest thing is that the hotel room continued to be let out to guests. So some of them who stayed in the room uh, actually ended up complaining about the weird smell emanating from the room. The funky smell. But none of them obviously thought or realised that a decomposing body was underneath their bed. Who had the dead baby under the bed? Uh, Albert Fish. You know, dead bodies under beds. When you get a bit scared when you're staying somewhere, have a look. You never know what could be under there. Scary. A lesson to live by. It is. It wasn't until the smell got so bad that the hotel manager decided to investigate himself and discovered the dead body hidden under the bed. TripAdvisor, I imagine, was not very complimentary. We'll stay again. A little bit stinky. So Daniel Deppner was the fifth victim. We touched upon Daniel Deppner before as he was involved in the murder of Gary Smith. He too had been involved in the same burglary ring that Kuklinski oversaw. Presumably after bumping off Smith, Kuklinski began to panic and felt that Deppner probably knew far too much. Deppner's body was discovered on May 14th, 1982 by the side of a road. A cyclist noticed a large wake of vultures surrounding something and jumped off his bike to investigate. A wake of vultures? Mm. Didn't know that, that was what a group of vultures were. Would you go investigate if you saw loads of vultures, Ben? I, I don't. I'm scared of vultures. Yeah? Yeah. Pretty big in person, aren't they? I'm sure I've seen one at a zoo. Even when you see a really big crow, it's a bit like, fucking hell, that's big. <laughs> yeah. Usually in like a McDonald's car park or something. Yeah. Late at night. Drive through. Circumstantial evidence there, Ben. <laughs> what have you know about? He quickly realised... <laughs> Can I have a happy meal, please, love? 
He quickly realised that the vultures were feeding on a dead body and immediately informed the police. The coroner discovered undigested food in Detner's stomach, strongly suggesting that Kaklingsi had used the same method of poisoning his victim's food with cyanide before strangling him to death. Cyanide killer. I mean, yeah. cyanide <laughs> sucker? Doesn't really work. The cyanide barrel boy. That sounds like he works in Borough Market. Does a bit. Thank you. So those were the five victims that Kuklinski was initially charged with. And obviously, as we've touched on in this episode, the guy did like to talk. He did do many different interviews and he is suspected of committing a far higher number of murders between 100 and 200. What we're going to do now is go on to the aftermath, talk about the trial and talk about some legacy pieces within the case. So we're going to go on to talk about the trial, first of all. So during his trial, the Iceman keeps true to his moniker, showing no remorse whatsoever for the crimes he has committed. He calmly describes the killings of each of the victims in what can only be described as a completely emotionless manner. He does, however, crack a smile for his old, supposed friend, Special Agent Dominic Polifroni, who he warmly greets upon noticing him in the courtroom. Polifroni goes on to give testimony against Kuklinski, and it is his evidence gathered as part of his undercover work that helps to cement the Iceman's conviction. Yeah, there's footage of that in the courtroom where you see... Him turn around, smiled at someone in the back, and apparently was Polifroni. But in court, the Iceman greeted the undercover cop with a smile. Because he does play a, such a character. Like we said in the interviews, there's lots of things online about the confession tapes of the Iceman when he's in prison and get interviewed, and he does very much play up to this role, and it's definitely worth a watch. But yeah, you see his little smile and his right smile there, which is kind of like, kind of like fair play to you kind of thing, which mm. is quite interesting to see. In 1988, Richard Kuklinski is sentenced to multiple life sentences, making him only eligible for parole at the age of 111. In 2003, he also pleaded guilty to an additional murder, that of NYPD officer Peter Calabro, who Kuklinski claims was a hit ordered by a mafia boss, Salvatore Gravano, otherwise known as Sammy the Bull. Kuklinski strangely gave details of this crime in one of his many interviews he conducted whilst in prison. Gravano's lawyers vehemently denied any involvement of the death of Peter Calabro, which occurred in 1980, and Kuklinski claims was carried out in the early hours one morning in the streets of New York. The Iceman claims to have shot Calabro to death. Richard Kuklinski spent the rest of his days in prison, but the previously incredibly private and secretive man was not shy at all when it came to divulging his murderous past. The multiple interviews carried out resulted in three televised series. The Iceman Tapes, Conversations with a Killer, which Thomas uh, just mentioned, uh, which came out in 1992. The Iceman Confesses, Secrets of a Mafia Hitman, which came out in 2001. And The Iceman and the Psychiatrist, which came out in 2001. And, free. and I think the psychiatrist one is broken down into like seven or eight parts on, on YouTube at the moment. But all of them are a fascinating watch and a fascinating insight into the mind of Richard Kuklinski. You have to take it with a pinch of salt though because he's very much, you see him stare through the camera a few times. Yeah, it's it's because as well, one thing he does, he has big pauses between he says stuff. He'll say, yeah. well, you know. And then he carries on. And it's like, well, as if you're talk I think if you're telling the truth, you end up speaking more kind of fluently and more I don't flow. know, more flow to it. Yeah, I just think, yeah. It, I feel like he's thinking as he speaks. I do that sometimes. Our animator, Phil, um, he kind of, with the animation he did for this one in particular, he kind of highlighted how much Phil was vehement yeah. that he spoke a lot of bullshit. So he's kind of done that with the animation for this one with the police kind of looking around going, hmm, I'm not sure about that. It takes a lot to irritate our Phil. It does. And uh, yeah, this case really rattled him. It did. So during these documentaries, he claims that nothing haunts me, no murders haunt me, and that he didn't allow himself to actually think about these crimes because it would wind up hurting. 
so he chose not to think about them too much, which is strange because it doesn't bother you than saying well, if you thought about it too much, it would, would hurt him. He said the only thing that he feels sorry for is hurting his family. And in a rare moment of emotion, he tears up on camera, admitting he did want his family to forgive him, saying, I've hurt people that mean everything to me. They're only people that mean everything to me. After implicating Salvatore Gravano in the murder of an NYPD cop, Kuklinski is due to appear as the star witness in court against the mob boss. However, before that is able to happen, Kuklinski surprisingly dies of supposed natural causes in early March of 2006. The man infamous for answering uh, the question if he felt he was an assassin as assassin sounds so exotic. I'm just a murderer. I've never felt sorry for any of the things I've done besides hurting my family. So Kuklinski was 70 years old at the time of his death. So yeah, it's a bit suspicious about him dying just before testifying against a, a mob boss there. So the Fars and the Iceman will never be close as long as the number and identities of the people he killed remain unknown. And a lot of the Iceman's accounts are conflicting, so we cannot be certain as to whether he committed multiple murders prior to being introduced to the world of organised crime or afterwards. There are interviews where he states both. Likewise, Kuklinski claims to have killed anywhere up to 250 people, yet these claims cannot be corroborated officially without bodies. As we said, fistful assault with what you're saying. First time I watched it, I believed every word he said, because I yeah. think you, you kind of think, well, I would be lying about this. But then after kind of watching it with a bit more context and uh, going through it with a, a fine tooth comb, you're like, hmm. Yeah. Richard. Yeah, the film, I think the film is worth a watch. And the, and the actual documentaries themselves are really, really interesting and worth a watch. As there is an element of intrigue surrounding Kuklinski. And in the series, he's actually quite interested himself to, or eager to learn from the psychiatrist why he is the way he is and why he's done the things he's done. Is it genuine? That is a question many people seem to ask. Or is he simply a cold-blooded and merciless killer? I don't know. He's got away with words. He's good at acting up to the camera. And it seems like the quotes of different people that actually met him in real life have also spoken to him in a way that he's very open about describing what he did and how mm. he did it quite graphically. But then also, if you look at his childhood and the way he was raised... And I mean, yeah. his, his bro one of his brothers killed at age six, beaten to death at age six by his own father. The other brother, obviously, a rapist and a murderer as well. Yeah, we kind a lot of, of brutality. we kind of not glossed over it, but when you look at other childhoods, when we delve into it, like he did have a horrible childhood. I mean, mm -hmm. He grew up in such a horrible household. I think he is very much one for his personal brand, and he knew. Mm -hmm. He liked the attention and he liked having these documentaries about him. He liked sitting there and doing all these quotes. I'm sure he thought about the kind of things he wanted to say. And well, it's like the point you made earlier about the fact that some people don't regard him as a serial killer. He, he's a serial killer, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And it's weird that sometimes the idea of a hitman or a contract killer could be like glamorized yeah. slightly. As well as the HBO documentary series that we've previously mentioned, multiple biographical books have been written about the exploits of Richard Kuklinski, along with a 2012 film depiction of the notorious hitman. The film stars, as Tom mentioned earlier, Michael Shannon as Kuklinski. Really like Michael Shannon. Yeah, Boardwalk great. Empire. And Winona Ryder. Uh, Not Tell Animals. And Winona Ryder plays his wife, Barbara. The film is aptly titled The Iceman and stars a number of other famous faces such as James Franco, Ray Liotta and Chris Evans. From Big Breakfast. <laughs> and although Kuklinski's death was ruled as death by natural causes, the circumstances surrounding Kuklinski's timely death do raise some questions, especially as Kuklinski himself thought that he was being poisoned, allegedly telling this suspicion to a family member in the weeks building up to his death. Mm. It would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah, get a bit of copper on the inside, a bit of poisonous food, wouldn't be too hard to do with it. Cyanide in the burger, the old trick. Mm. Yeah, and he, well, he's bigger, bigger than an ox, probably would have taken a little while to get him to uh, pass away from that, yeah. that method, wouldn't it, Ben? Definitely. Really? So that is the case of the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, and now we're going to go into some lookalikes, Benjamin. What does it look like? That looks like a bit like that. Yeah, it looks a bit like it. 
Absolutely. So I, I despite aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> So I I um I feel that he has one of those faces. He does have one of those faces. Um but I also really struggled. I've got three. A lot of people online as well are saying not only did he live a life similar to Tony Soprano, but has visually kind of a similar appearance. James Gandolfini did play uh, a gay hitman in the movie The Mexican. Uh, he was chasing after J- uh, Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts. But I've, I've not gone for James Gandolfini. I have gone. So why'd you mention it? Just thought it was worth mentioning. A lot of people are talking about it, you know, discussion, talk about it. And, and Gandolfini's amazing. My first lookalike, probably my weakest of the three, I've gone for Kyle Gass of Tenacious D. You've used him before, haven't you? It's not crazy bad. It's not crazy bad, thank you very much. That's quite good, actually. Thanks, Dan. Mm, fine. Getting better at this point. I am. Get for your next one, mate. I'm just finding mine. My second one, Brian Blessed. Feel Brian like, Blessed! Feel like they could be uh, cousins? No. It's a no for back to you, back to your normals now. I don't hate it. It's the nose. I don't hate it. It's the nose. It doesn't hate it, so that's fine. And I'll go with my final one. Wrestler, WCW wrestler, Kevin Sullivan. The eyes are good. Thank you. So I've got the eyes there and then the nose with Brian Blessed and then... <laughs> You've done well this week to be fair. I did ask for help from my parents. Oh, God. My, my Stop da- asking for help! My dad said a fat key for Sutherland, but I don't really see it. Uh, a little bit. So mine's a very particular era of, of the um, of the Iceman, so it's, it's this era. Oh, okay. So that was before he even went sort of cold. And I went for Michael McKean. Oh, yeah, very good. And then the other one is the more beardy, well-known one. And this is a pretty bad one, but I'd be John Goodman in um, Inside Lewin Davis. But I, I prefer the Michael McK- McKean one. But, They're um, both good shouts. Yeah, like Michael McKean one, I'm not so sure about John Goodman. There's just a guy of a goatee and a bit bigger. I was surprised Michael Shannon, because I've used Michael Shannon in a few of my lookalikes, but surprised he played him. Yeah, he got cast as him. He's good at being very kind of cold and calculated as well it is a good film and if it's because it's some of the stories are so far-fetched it you can believe in that yeah. where in the real world it's not so much but anyway that is the case we hope you find it found it as interesting as we did and let us know if you believed what you were saying or if he was telling tall tales let us know if you if you watch any of the documentaries that we've mentioned because we'd be interested to hear your your guys thoughts on that and guys some really exciting news to keep your eyes peeled this friday because we're going to be launching something very exciting which we'd love for you guys to get involved in and have a look at and let us know what you think of it we're very excited to launch this it's been a long time in the working in the behind the scenes over here at Argue Murder Podcast so keep an eye out for that and yes guys like I mentioned last week if you could email in hello at icmop.co.uk with some cult applications we're looking for voicemails we're looking for videos just because we want to get guys involved with the episodes and we think a bit of visual a bit of audio will make it a bit more interesting we kind of hear you know how much you want to be in it you've got ideas get a bit more of a feel for you exactly we're not trying to let any old person in so if you could send that over to hello at icmop.co.uk that'd be much appreciated and you could feature on an upcoming episode and thank you ever so much for all the people that have emailed in. We've been blown away by the number of applications for the cult. But yeah, video or audio applications would be next level in terms of uh, being admitted into the cult. Or why not hit us up on this number below over on our WhatsApp and see if you'll be accepted into the cult of Icamap. And for the audio li- listeners, we'll put the number in the episode description for you. And if you just can't wait until next week's episode, which is a biggie, by the way, we've put kind of the Iceman in between two very, very, very big cases. Then we have got a Patreon page, which at the time of uh, recording, we've got almost 100 episodes live over on there. So why not check out patreon.com forward slash could murder a pod? It really supports the channel. And we've got a cool little community over there. 
We've also got Instagram, um, Twitter, both at Could Murder a Pod. With Instagram in particular, be sure to follow us on there because that will talk about the episodes that are coming up. We do episode announcements on the Friday before the Monday when they go live. And it's just a, a bloody nice place to see what we're up to. It is indeed. A big thank you once again to Gully Garms for dressing us this series. Got lots of lovely garms to be wearing. And thank you again for all the Kill Bens out there. There is also a Kill Tom code. You can kill whoever you want off and we appreciate the support greatly. Lots of vintage Freds, guys or girls. I think he works at Vintage Fred, doesn't he? Vintage, yeah, he does, yeah. Fred. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, festival season's just around the corner Is after it? all. Yeah, a few months away, but get stocked up now. Get in there quick. And we're also delighted to announce that we have two things running that we don't run, and it's just been from you guys, which we absolutely love and adore. We have a subreddit that we've learned, that's how you say it, um, ICMAP subreddit, where people post things to have a little chat about what we do, and it's lovely. We, we gaze over that occasionally and have a little chuckle to ourselves, and it's interesting to see what you guys think as well, so we love reading those. But also, Ben, the dream has come reality. We have a zero-context or no-context Instagram page being run where... They take little things that we've said, which sounds absolutely baffling by themselves, yeah. but it's hilarious to see which, which clips are being picked and then put on there. And there's, there's, I think, a few on there currently and bloody loving it. What is the handle for that one, Dan? The handle is ICMAP underscore out of context yes. on Instagram. We'll be sharing that on, on our Instagram as well, but why not go over there and support them? Because, yeah, we appreciate the, the effort gone in. And yes, we love to see it. You do love to see it. Man. Bloody love to see it. Yeah. That, that about wraps us up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for all the support. That's thank right. you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> thank you so much for all the love, all of the new followers, new subscribers. If you're an audio listener, please feel free to give us a rating. If you're a video watcher, please leave a like and follow and subscribe and comment and all that good stuff. I'm out of my depth. And like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't throw animals off the top of a fifth story building fifth story building or floory building mm, don't season your burgers with cyanide no, don't piss the bed if you can help it unless you have dogs you have to take them out in the middle of the night yeah small bladders so yeah but you it's not shaking off enough living the thoughts getting that again wow that's a lot of piss to balloon. detail thanks guys <laughs> see you next week Tupit. hope everybody had a brilliant Christmas and New Year we have a lot of big things in store for 2023. Damn, what can people expect? Intimidation. Oh, sh- <laughs> Charles Manson, that's the wrong one. <laughs> I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.